Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, this is, uh, when I say chapter 11, 11 is the big number, and then when I say verses 1 through 19, those are the small numbers. Those are the verse numbers that we'll be looking at this morning. Matthew 11, 1 through 19, we're resuming our series in the gospel according to Matthew. It's been over a year. I think we left off in Matthew 10 in, the, in 2019, and so we're picking it up here in Matthew 11 this morning. Hear God's word. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into to the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women... No one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that Matthew 11, 1 through 19 would dwell richly in our hearts, that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would soften our hearts before your word. Lord, we know that you look to those who are humble and broken in spirit and, are, and tremble at your word. So give us the gift of trembling at your word. Give us, the, give us a hunger and an appetite and an expectation that you are speaking to us and that you want to change our lives this morning. So Father, shift us, convict us, change us, transform us, convert those here who still have not yet trusted in Christ for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this past week, I had a sharp flash of discouragement and disappointment. Some would say it's sort of a midlife crisis. I haven't done enough reading on a midlife crisis to know if it's technically a midlife crisis, but it certainly felt like one. I was in physical pain this week, but the pain represented, it wasn't just the pain itself that was bothering me. It's, that the, it's the fact that that pain represented a change in my body that signaled to me very clearly, I'm getting old. And I was really, I was really, truly saddened by it. I was disappointed. It really went deep into, the, the discouragement went deep. It wasn't just a surface thought of discouragement. 
it went deep. And I was like, is this what midlife crisis is, where it really starts to hit you? It was a deeper sadness, though, because it was rooted in the fact that I was not just disappointed. I was disappointed with God. I'm not a prophet, but let me make a prophecy this morning. Disappointment is in your future. In your future, in your near future, and your distant future, if God gives you a distant future, disappointment is there. It's coming. So how do we deal with disappointments that are coming our way or that are already here today? There is an ultimate disappointment, and then there is a less than ultimate or a penultimate disappointment. And as I preach mostly to Christians here this morning, I'm mostly referring to penultimate, less than ultimate disappointments. And so I want to ask you, Christian friend, Christian brother or sister this morning, how will you deal with your disappointment? What will you do when disappointment comes? Here's the main idea this morning from this text. When with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He's God's anointed. So a little rhyme here for you this morning. When with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He's God's anointed. And for those of you who know what it means to be God's anointed, what does that mean? Give me another word for God's anointed. Messiah. Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one. God's coming king that was promised long ago. So what should you do when you, what should you do when you're disappointed? When you look at Christ and you're disappointed. It's one thing to be disappointed with, with physical pain in your body or circumstance in your life. But when you look at Jesus himself and you're disappointed with Jesus, I mean, he's supposed to be your, your deliverance from disappointment, right? But when you look at Christ himself and your disappointment, what, what, what do you do? Well, there are three checks in this passage that I want to go over with you that would help us to understand how to lean toward Christ when we're disappointed in Christ. Okay? Three checks. Number one, verses one through six, check the scriptures. Check the scriptures, verses one through six. Let's go to the story here. So in verse one of Matthew 11, we learn here, we learn here in Matthew 11 that Jesus finished giving instructions to the 12. They're out spreading the gospel or preaching the kingdom, even though they don't know the cross yet. And then Jesus moves on and he wants to preach in the next town and teach in the next town and in the next town. Because that is why Christ came, according to Mark 138. He came to preach and teach in the towns to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In verses 2 and 3, look at it with me. It says, when John heard... In prison, that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, when he heard what he was doing, John sent a message through his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the one or not? Are you the one who's to come? Or are we expecting another one? Are you the Christ or not? John was curious, but he was more than curious. He was confused. He was not only doubting, that Jesus was actually the Messiah. I mean, just a few months or year, a year or so earlier, he pointed out, Jesus said, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who's going to rule and reign. He's bringing the thunder. He's bringing the judgment. He's bringing the broom. He's going to sweep and clean up and clean house and bring judgment on sinners and bring in the kingdom. John pointed him out, and now John is in prison saying, what's up? Are you the one or not? Why am I in prison? He's not only doubting Jesus, he's discouraged by Jesus. He's disappointed in Jesus. And that's why we get this thought, what do you do when you're disappointed with Jesus? Verse 4 and 5, Jesus gives his response. Let's hear Christ's response. Jesus replied to them to tell John, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So what does, John, what does Jesus say? He's basically saying, tell, tell them what you see. Jesus is actually resting on his integrity. You know when someone challenges you or doubts you or, or is disappointed in you, you're tempted to, to give an answer to puff yourself up 
and even make stuff up or exaggerate things so that you're not a disappointment to people. Jesus didn't have to puff himself up. He, he just, he could live out of his integrity. You're questioning me? Cool. Just tell him what I'm doing. The lame are walking. The blind are receiving sight. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. The poor are being told the good news. Those with leprosy are being healed and cleansed. Just tell John what's happening. Now, this is a significant answer because John was saying, are you the one, are you the Christ who is prophesied? When Jesus says what he's doing, he's actually referring to what the prophet said the Messiah would do. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, which our brother Ross, Lord willing, is going to be preaching today, this afternoon, this evening, for our evening gathering. Jesus says that he's going to preach the good news to the poor. In Isaiah 35, verse 4, it says, or verse 5, it says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So it's prophesying what's going to happen in the future, and it's happening Jesus is doing it in part. So why is John discouraged? I mean, this is why we check the scriptures. Is Jesus the one or not? Well, what does the Bible say? Is, is he actually doing these things or not? He is doing these things, right? But there are other things in Isaiah 61 that John read for us this morning that we read and, and, or heard. And in Isaiah 35 that Jesus is not doing. Listen to Isaiah 35. I read to you verse 5. But listen to what's right before it. The wilderness and dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. Verse 4 says, say to the cowardly, be strong. Do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. Okay, you get that? The eyes of the blind will be opened is tied to God coming. Vengeance coming. Retribution coming, salvation coming, eyes of the blind open, deaf hearing, lame walking, mute speaking. So Jesus is saying that stuff is happening over here, but where's the vengeance part? Where's the retribution part? Where's the salvation part? I'll read on in Isaiah 35. It says, water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Where's that new creation part? Or verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing crowned with unending joy joy and gladness will overwhelm them and sorrow and sighing will be gone john is saying where is that and jesus is saying read your bible john i'm doing it and then jesus goes even further so is jesus doing all of isaiah 35 is it obviously clear that jesus is doing all of isaiah 35 and all of isaiah 61 yes or no is he doing all of it yes or no no, he's not. Is he doing some of it? Yes or no? Yes. And so John is doubting, and Jesus goes right back to the text and says, read it again. Go back to the text. If you don't think I'm the one, just read it. Who else is doing this? Now, other people have done other miracles, lame walking, even the dead raising. Elijah, Elisha raised someone from the dead. Even in the New Testament, Peter and Paul raised someone from the dead temporarily, then they died again, but they were raised from the dead. But eyes of the blind... No one in the Bible or in human history, as far as we know, has restored sight to the blind, at least not in the Bible. Jesus, that's a, that's a Messiah-only miracle. So, so others might do other stuff, but the eyes of the blind thing, that's only Jesus, and he's done it several times. So John, I'm doing what no one else has done. Tell John that. And then Jesus throws it down even more. So it's almost like... Is, I mean, it's almost like John is, is kind of poking at Jesus, right? Are you the one to come or not? Are you the real one or not? And then Jesus actually claps back. Look at verse 6. What does Jesus say? Tell him what's happening, and guess what? And blessed is the one who isn't what? Can you guys see it there? Look at verse 6. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What is he saying about John? That John is what? Offended. He stumbled. John is taking offense that he's in prison while, the, while he's the Messiah who's supposedly bringing in the kingdom. Jesus says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. John is offended by Jesus, and Jesus calls him out. He tells him to stop being offended, John. Go back to the Bible. Check the scriptures and see if what I'm doing is what was actually prophesied. Now, why was John offended? John was offended 
because he was still in prison with no end in sight. I mean, you could imagine John when he first gets in prison being confident. All right, you can lock me up, but guess who's out there? The Messiah. He's about to bust me out of here. Yeah, go ahead, arrest me. And then a day later, a week later, two weeks later, he's like, what is going on? He just, you know, he's arrested with confidence, and all of a sudden, his confidence starts to dissipate. And he, he starts to doubt. He starts to get to dis- he gets disappointed. And then he gets offended by Jesus. He was offended that Jesus took so long. He was disappointed in Jesus' timing to the point where he wondered whether he was actually the Messiah. Let me ask you this morning. Do you get offended by Jesus' timing? Are you offended by Jesus' timing in your life? What he's promised you? God doesn't give us the things we want when we want them. John wanted the kingdom now. He wanted release from prison now. He wanted the judgment now. He wanted salvation now. He wanted the kingdom reign now. And Jesus wasn't doing that yet because it wasn't time for that. Jesus was preparing, and John, would, we would all later understand this. The disciples didn't even understand this at the time. Jesus was preparing to go to the cross. Do you think God is slow and unwise in the timing of his promises to you? Do you think God is lagging in his purposes for your life? Are you disappointed with Jesus? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray that almost every week here. Are you disappointed he's not coming yet? So you could be disappointed in God's timing. Let's just illustrate other ways you could be disappointed from elsewhere in the Bible. Sometimes people are disappointed not with God's timing, but God's goodness and meaning. Even King Solomon, who had the temple of God, he saw the Shekinah glory of God dwell in the temple. He had the promises of an eternal kingdom and um, his, his kingship. He had peace. He had wealth. He had strength. He had wisdom. He had knowledge. He had sensual pleasures. Whatever else you could think of humanly, he had it. And yet at the end of the day, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. There is no purpose. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he doubted God's goodness as he indulged in the pleasures of the world. Are you disappointed in God's goodness? Is the meaning and goodness that Christ gives you so weak and so untrustworthy that you need to look elsewhere to see if there really is something out there to really give you that meaning in your life? God promised, Jesus promised to be your bread of life and your water of life in whom you'll never hunger nor thirst because he will satisfy you again and again and again so that you can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So you might be disappointed in God's timing. You might be disappointed in Christ's goodness and meaning. Maybe you're disappointed in the security that Christ promises you. Do you you remember from the book of Kings, the story of Jeroboam? Remember, he was going to take the kingdom, take half of the kingdom away from Solomon. So Solomon's son Rehoboam would be the king. And then Jeroboam was promised he would get the ten tribes. And this is the crazy promise, right? That that the prophet said to Jeroboam, if you walk in God's ways, you will have an eternal kingdom. Just like David. That's a wild promise, right? Who gets that? That's a wild promise. Just obey me. Just worship Yahweh and don't worship idols. And I will give you an eternal kingdom. An eternal dynasty. And what does Jeroboam, that's, is that security? That's a great promise, right? What does, what does Jeroboam have to do? All he has to do is what? Just obey God. What happens? The kingdom splits. Jeroboam is up in the north. And where's the temple? In the south. Where's the priesthood? In the south. Where's the sacrificial system? In the south. They got to cross the border of Israel to Judah to worship Yahweh in the feasts and festivals. And so what does Jeroboam feel? Does he feel secure in God's promises? No, he's like, God, or not even God, I don't know if I'm going to keep my people. I don't know if I can hold these people. They're going to go down and I'm going to lose them all to to Rehoboam, to to the kingdom of Judah. I need, I I know, I'm going to make golden cows. I'm going to make golden calves in the north and the south, and we're going to set up high hills to worship Yahweh with these golden calves. And now I could secure my kingdom. He was disappointed with God's promise. Question. Is God's promise enough for you? Is that secure enough for you? That it says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If God is for us, who can be? 
against us? Does that feel securing to you? Does that feel secure and safe for you? Or is that promise not enough? Yeah, God, I, I know you say that, but what I really need to do is build a golden cow to really get secure with my treasure. One more. God's timing, God's goodness, God's security. Maybe you're disappointed with God's spiritual work in your life or among your neighbors and society. Do you remember Elijah at Mount Carmel? He had a showdown with the 450 or so prophets of Baal. Whoever calls down fire from heaven wins, and that God is truly God. If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. Remember that? And, and everyone says, yeah, we, we get it, we agree. Does Baal have fire come down? Yes or no? The false god, does they have fire come down? Yes or no? No. Does Yahweh bring fire down? Yes or no? Yes. And as fire comes down, everyone falls flat on their face and say, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Did that bring the spiritual revival to Israel that Elijah longed for? Did people put away their idols and worship Yahweh alone in Israel? Yes or no? No. Such that when Elijah went to Mount Sinai, when he went back to Mount Sinai, I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't called Mount Sinai, but it is the same mount. Um, when he went back to that mountain, he said, Lord, I'm the only one left. You just put, poured fire from heaven. All of Israel saw it. Nobody's worshiping you. I'm the only faithful one in the world. Just me. He was disappointed with God's spiritual work among people. Are you disappointed? with God's work in your life? Is God too slow to work in your life that you're more disappointed than encouraged? Are you more disappointed that the gospel's spreading slowly and we're not seeing as many conversions or any conversions lately and we want to see someone converted to Christ? Am I disappointed that when I say, who's sharing the gospel this week? Raise your hand and only three members raise their hand. Am I disappointed with Christ? Is God not moving among us? Does God not promise that the fields are white with harvest? Is that untrue for you? Does it seem that God has wrongly or unnecessarily been withholding the experience of revival from you or from our church? Now, I'm not calling you for a contentment to be content with no one getting saved. Let us not be content with that. But are we disappointed with God? God promised we would bear fruit and that his word never returns empty. Here's the main application from this first point, okay? Main application from point one is this. It's from verse six. Don't be offended by Jesus. Don't be offended by Jesus. What does that mean? Read God's words carefully. Listen assiduously to what God has said in the expository preaching from this pulpit and as you read your Bible. Check the scriptures. Look at what God actually promised. When it says, we just read Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your what? Needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Will God supply all your needs, yes or no? All of them? Yes. So you're saying, well, PJ, I have needs in my life that God's not supplying. Well, the question is, what do you actually need? Go back to the Bible again. God's promises do not fail. But read the text. Read the Bible carefully memorize scripture children children i'm talking to you now young kids look here memorize bible verses memorize your catechism but especially god's words memorize the bible especially when you're young if you memorize you say oh I'll, I'll memorize it when i'm when i'm older well when you're older and you memorize the bible you only have it for that many years of your life when you memorize scripture when you're a little kid that stays with you for the rest of your life Make it a goal. One of our guests who we're considering for membership tonight, our brother Scott, just shared how many Bible verses he wants to memorize, and he asked that we pray for that. So, Scott, thank you for inspiring this application. Children, come up with a goal of how many Bible verses you can memorize in the next two months. Or we're, This is the last day of, let's just say the next month. This is the last day of January, starting in February. Kids, make it a goal. Memorize four verses, one each week, and hide it in your heart. So that when you doubt God's promises, you can know exactly what God says because you've memorized it. If you're discouraged, let me encourage you this morning. If you're disappointed with the Lord and discouraged by Jesus, let me encourage you. God is not unfaithful. Jesus will keep every single one of his promises. 
God the Father gave you his son, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Jesus is faithful to all that the Bible says he is. So when with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He's God's anointed. So first do that by checking the scriptures, what they actually say. But how do we know what the scripture actually says? I mean, what if we're not interpreting it correctly? What if we're not applying the Bible correctly? How can we know that, that this is actually Jesus so we're not, we're not supposed to be disappointed with him? Well, don't just check the Bible. Secondly, check the messengers. Check the messengers that God has sent you. Verses 7 through 15. Check the messengers. Look at verse 7 now. So Jesus is done talking to John. Conversation over with John. New conversation. Jesus turns to the crowds. The messengers of John leave. And Jesus starts to tell people about who John is. He addresses John's inquiry. Or after addressing that, he says, um, it's, it's safe to think now that he's addressing mostly people who have not yet trusted in Christ. And so he tells them about John. In verse 7 through 8, he says, what did you guys go out to see? Was, G was John a reed swaying in the wind? No. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothes? Did you go there to see a celebrity and to see royal royalty on display? Is that what you went out to see? No. What did you go out to see? According to verse 9, what did they go out to see? A what? A prophet. John is a prophet of God. Not only is he a prophet, Let's think about John here. Not only is he a prophet, he's more than a prophet. According to verse 10, he is the one of whom it is written in Malachi 3.1, the very last written words in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus. God promised, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, John is the one prophesied 400 years ago through the prophet Malachi. So he's more than a prophet. Not only is he more than a prophet, let's go to verses 12 and 13. We learn that John is suffering just like those in the kingdom would suffer. Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, so when John started his ministry up until Jesus lecturing here and talking here, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. People talk about God, the true God, and what do they get? Persecution opposition, dismissal, marginalization. That's what happens when you speak the truth in love to those who don't want the truth, right? That's what happens. And so John is not only a prophet, he's not only the one prophesied 400 years ago by Malachi in Malachi 3.1, he is suffering for the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Not only that, look at verse 14. He's, not, he's more than that. Look at verse 14. If you're willing to accept it, crowd, who is John? He's what? He's the Elijah who is to come. This is the very last prophecy in the written Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, God said Elijah is coming. And who is Elijah that is to come? John the Baptist. So why do you, why do you see John? Is he, a, is he a messenger of God? Well, let's see. Is he a prophet? Yes or no? Yes. Is he more than a prophet? Yes. He's the one prophesied to prepare the way. Is he more than that? Is he actually suffering? Does he have credibility as one who suffers for the kingdom? Yes or no? Yes. And is he actually the Elijah specifically prophesied in Malachi 4, 5, according to Jesus? Is he that Elijah? Yes or no? Yes. That's the messenger. So if you're wondering if his message that I'm the Messiah, Jesus says, is true, that messenger is legitimate, right? His credentials check out. But let's go to maybe the most jarring of his credentials in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Do you hear that? Among all those born of women, and everyone is born of women, except Adam and Eve, right? Among all those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. What is he saying about John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the goat. That's what he's saying, right? That ends the debate on who the goat is. John the Baptist is the goat. He is the greatest of all time up until this point, right? 
among all those humans born of women, so except Adam and Eve, so maybe Adam and Eve are the goats, but besides them, John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. Why is John the greatest? He's not the greatest in wealth. He's not the greatest in fashion sense. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. He's not the greatest dietitian or nutritionist, registered nutritionist. Is that the right term? Registered dietitian. Is that right? Okay. He's not the greatest registered dietitian. He eats locusts and wild honey for his diet. He's not the greatest in wisdom. Solomon was greater. He's not the greatest in military might or strategy. David was probably greater. He's not the greatest in birth order. Abraham is greater in birth order in terms of patriarchy. He's not in the greatest, he's not the greatest tribe. He's not even a tribe. He's not the greatest in strength. Samson was probably stronger. In what sense is John the Baptist the greatest of all time? He's the greatest up to this point in history because he was the one. So he's greater than David. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than Adam. He's greater than Eve. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah, the original Elijah. He's greater than Elisha. In what sense is John greater than all of these people? In this sense, he was the one divinely appointed to introduce Jesus as the Messiah the savior of the world. He was the appointed one who was going to be the one to publicly identify Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Isaiah pointed to Jesus, right? Moses pointed to Jesus. The prophets pointed to Jesus. King David pointed to Jesus in the Psalms. People point to him, but they don't point to him and say, this one standing right here, like actual the person, like right here, this person standing right here, this is the one. Only John, up until this point in history, was able to point to the exact person in whom all the promises of God are met. The Messiah. So in other words, greatness on Jesus' terms and standard, greatness turns on your relation to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is infinitely great. Jesus is the greatest in the universe. And whoever is closest to Jesus is the greatest by definition or by standard of Jesus being great. So he was the one right before Jesus to reveal who the, whom the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus is the center of the universe. He's the center of all knowledge. He's the center of all reality. He is the center of the scriptures. He's the center of our lives. He's the center of the new creation to come. Jesus is the center and the greatest. So greatness on this scale turns on the immediacy and clarity of pointing to Jesus, D.A. Carson says. John had the most immediate pointing to Jesus because he's right next to Jesus, and he was the clearest in pointing to Jesus. So greatness turns on the immediacy and great and clarity of pointing to Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, thank you for coming this morning. We're glad you're here. Thank you for taking the invitation of your friend. It can be a long, trying thing to sit through many songs and long prayers and now a long message. But let me just whittle all of this down for you in terms of the message of Christianity. Because John's privilege and greatness is the fact that he got to say, this is the Messiah. So I want to ask you, do you understand who Jesus is? The good news of the world is that our world was created by God, but this world is broken by sin and death, and evil, and Satan, and our own sin. We are evil. We follow demonic influence. And therefore, we are damned before God. So this world is broken, it's dying, and there's a lot of hopelessness out in this world. Is there not? There's a lot of hopelessness out in this world. And God has promised from the very beginning of sin in the Garden of Eden that he would bring a deliverer to crush Satan and bring hope to a cursed world. He would bring the blessing to a cursed world. From the garden it was promised, from our very first ancestors, through Abraham to King David, the greatest king of Israel perhaps. When God kicked Israel out of the land, he promised that he would bring someone to save his people from their sins. 
The greatest need in the world is for you to be saved from your sins. And the, the message of Matthew, according to Matthew 121, is this man's name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Here's the good news if you're not a Christian. You can be saved from your sins. You can be saved from death. You can be saved from hopelessness. You can be saved from brokenness. You can be saved from judgment and damnation. You can be saved from meaninglessness. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. God's Son who came into the world, lived a perfectly righteous life, died on the cross for sinners, and rose from the dead. Here's the good news for you. If you will repent from your sins and repent from your goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone, his life, his death, and his resurrection for you, God will save you from your sins. God will forgive you right now. He'll unite you to Christ. He'll give you his Holy Spirit, and he'll begin to transform your life forever. And then when Christ returns, you'll, you'll celebrate with him and us with glorified, renewed, undying, incorruptible bodies on a new earth forever and ever and ever. And the hope that John was hoping in prison that the kingdom would come will come. And we will all celebrate that in its fullness together. That's God's invitation for you this morning if you're not a Christian. God wants to change the destiny of your life, the, the destination of your life, from damnation to celebration with God on a new earth forever. If you will trust in Jesus and repent from your sins. So I invite you to do that today. Jesus is the goal of the world. He is the destination of our lives. Now, John is not, John the Baptist is not the goat in this text. You guys see that? Go back to Matthew 11, verse 11. There are, there is someone who is greater than John. What does it say in verse 11? Who is greater than John? You guys tell me. Who's, who's greater than John according to verse 11? The least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. Who are those who are the least in the kingdom? These are those who, unlike John, understand that Jesus is the one who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Now, John understands that now. But at this point, when John is in prison, he doesn't understand that Christ is going to die and rise from the dead. He doesn't understand that, that Jesus would inaugurate the new covenant, that there would be a cup. And he would say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that he would shed his blood for sinners and that he would bring the new covenant blessing to Israel and graft other people into Christ so that this new Israelic covenant blessing would spread to all of those who trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins. Those who are in the least in the kingdom are those who unite to the king. They become one with the king by faith in the king, Jesus Christ. So a Christian today who knows Jesus and the gospel can point Jesus out with greater clarity than John the Baptist could. I mean, Matthew 11 is evidence that John is not that clear, right? I mean, he's clear enough to say this is the Messiah, but then he sends a messenger, sends messengers to Jesus saying, are you the what? Are you the one? In other words, for John, it's not that clear. It's clear enough he could identify him, but then he has his doubts. He doesn't understand suffering. He doesn't understand God's timing. He doesn't understand the cross. But a Christian today does. So you can point out Jesus with greater clarity than John the Baptist. In other words, you are greater than John the Baptist. Not because you're a greater communicator and you have greater communicative, communicative skills than John the Baptist. Not because more people are drawn to you than John the Baptist. That's not necessarily true either. But you can point Jesus out with greater clarity. So members of gospel churches publicly recognized they are they are publicly recognized as those in god's kingdom because churches exercise the keys of the kingdom to bind people to the kingdom publicly and those are the ones who are the least in the kingdom so if you're a member of a christian gospel preaching church you're part of the least in the kingdom and guess what you're greater than john the baptist you're greater than john the baptist so what does this mean for us christian and church family Recognize your fellow members that they're greater than John the Baptist. This gathering is a gathering of people, of the greatest people of all time. This is a gathering of goats. I know we're sheep, but in one sense, this is a gathering of goats. The greatest people, Matthew eleven eleven, the greatest people in the world today. Did you guys watch the inauguration? How many of you watched the inauguration, the presidential inauguration? I watched it. You see a lot of 
high, powerful people, celebrities and things like that, you're like, man, what would it be like to be at a gathering like that? But the gathering of the greatest humans on earth today, according to Matthew 11, 11, are those who are gathering all over the world in their local churches to celebrate and proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. This gathering is the gathering of the greatest people on earth today. It is a gathering of goats. You are the greatest of all time. Right now, because you know Jesus, you can point to Jesus. You can declare the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And you do. Stand and wonder at what's going on here. I'm just watching this family, this, this father, um, walk his three kids. You guys see that family? Walking by and the three kids just staring. And I'm looking at the kids thinking, you don't even know what you're looking at. This is a gathering of greatness. The, the gathering of the greatest people on earth today. And they have no idea. Dad, and by the way, I was just praying for them. Because we are even proclaiming, um, Jesus, this gathering says, Jesus, I adore you. I lay my life before you. How I love you. As you're loving Jesus and adoring Jesus and proclaiming Jesus to that family walking by here, they are walking past greatness. So brothers and sisters, if you're doubting and disappointed with Jesus, listen to the messengers, the truly great ones who gospelize you and tell you about Jesus. Listen to Ross and Christine Kwong. Listen to Bryant Overton. Listen to Jeremiah Turner. Listen to these brothers and sisters as they tell you that God is good to you in Christ. These are the great ones when you're disappointed with Jesus. Listen to them. Receive their word of gospel goodness and be changed again and again out of your disappointment as you lean toward the one who is God's anointed. For churches around the world, God's message is that we as churches need to recognize other gospel preaching churches and recognize the greatness of their members. So Grace Church Monterey Bay is represented here. Casa de Oración is, re is represented here, some members from their church. We need to, as a church, recognize those churches as gatherings of greatness, of the saints all around the world. Even if we disagree on secondary issues with Presbyterian churches or Methodist churches or Episcopalian churches. Yeah, we might disagree on baptism, and that's important. We might disagree on church polity. That's important. But we don't disagree on Jesus and the gospel. And that's where greatness lies. And that's where our unity lies with other churches. Children, who's your favorite Bible character? Any kid want to shout out their favorite Bible character? Can't say, uh, besides Jesus. Anyone? Favorite Old Testament character. All right, children are too shy. What about one of the adults? Favorite Old Testament character. Mary, okay, uh, Mary's in the New Testament. Oh, wait, oh, yeah, okay. Thank you, Adeline. Anyone from the Old Testament? Isaiah is your favorite? Wow. <laughs> Who else? Moses? Okay, Isaiah, I don't really know much about Isaiah's story. I mean, I know how he passed away. I mean, I, I'm thinking someone like Samson or Solomon, like the wisest or the strongest. Okay, but yeah, fine. Isaiah, if that's what you like. Anyways. The point here for you kids is how cool it would be. I mean, I, I try to tell my kids to interview different members of our church to get to know them, ask questions. How cool it would it be, kids, if you could interview King David or King Solomon or Samson or Isaiah, right? How cool would it be to interview Abraham and Sarah? What was it like to give birth at 89 years old? It would be so cool to interview them or even John the Baptist. But your parents, kids, listen. Your parents are greater than John the Baptist. Your parents are greater than King David. Your parents are greater than Sarah and Abraham, at least on Matthew 11, 11 standards. So ask your parents about Jesus. Ask your parents about greatness. Ask other church members here about their experience of who God is in Christ. If you're discouraged this morning, I have an encouraging word for you. You are great because you know Jesus. You are great in God's eyes, and you're called to live in this greatness as you point others to Jesus. God makes sinners great in Christ. When with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He's God's anointed. How can you lean on him? By checking the Bible, 
and going back to what God actually promised, what Jesus actually promised, by going to Jesus' messengers and hearing them talk about Jesus truly. A third thing to do, a third check when you are disappointed with Jesus is found in verses 16 to 19. I'm not going to say what that check is yet, but Ross, just tell me if I don't say it out loud because I might forget to say it. Tell me to say it out loud, okay? So here's the third check. Let's go to verses 16 and 19. Go back to your Bible. Verse 16 says this. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. Have you ever tried to play with kids? Now, I'm going to embarrass, maybe not embarrass my kids because I'm not going to tell which one, but sometimes we try, to play, we, pl- we try to play family games in our home, and we say, okay, let, um, I got so tired of trying to pick a game and being congregational and democratic, you know? I'm like, you know, I'm just going to pick a game. We're just going to go down the list of games. This night's the next game that's on the shelf. We're just going to go down the list. And so sometimes kids don't want to play those games. One of them was really pushing against playing a dance charades game that we played on Friday night. But to this child's credit, when the music started and we started dancing and the game got going, unlike the children called out in this passage, this daughter of mine jumped in and made the game way more fun and memorable than it could have ever been without, without her doing it. But here in this passage, these kids are uncooperative. They don't want to play the game. So someone says, you know, let's, let's, let's sing a happy song. Let's play a happy game. I don't want to play a happy game. I want, I, I, I'm feeling sad. Let's, let's play something more serious. That's too happy. Let's play something less fun and more serious. All right, let's play something serious. I don't want to play something serious. I want to play something more fun and happy. And you, you, you talk to this, ch- this child, and whichever way you go, they don't want to do that. They want to do the opposite. Have you, ever, have you ever talked to a child like that? And no matter what you do, they just can't be satisfied either way. That's what Jesus compares his hearers to. Jesus says, what could I compare this generation to? This generation, these hearers, they're like these kids. They play a sad song, it's too sad. I don't wanna, I don't wanna play that, that, that game. Uh, let's, let's play this game, I don't wanna play that game either. And so Jesus says, this is how, how it is with you. Why? Because John came, look at verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, And you say what? He has a what? He has a demon. So John comes, ascetic, disciplined, serious, judgment of God. And they say, man, that guy is possessed. That guy is a demon. Then Jesus comes, eating, drinking, salvation of God, not judgment, salvation of God, eating with tax collectors and sinners that John was condemning. And they say, what a glutton. What a drunkard. Does he have any standards of morality? Does he care that God wants to judge sins? So John preaches judgment. He's too harsh. Jesus preaches salvation and mercy. He's too soft. John is so disciplined. Let's stay away from eating and drinking. He's too strict and boring. Jesus wants a party. He's too loose. Either way, they're rejecting Jesus and they're rejecting John. Now, does John have a demon? Yes or no? No. Was Jesus a drunkard and glutton? Yes or no? No. Did Jesus compromise morally because he spent time with sinners and tax collectors who were greedy and oppressive and dishonest? Was Jesus compromised morally? Yes or no? No. And Jesus says in verse 19, how do you know that Jesus is the right, on the right side and not these people who are judging Jesus? Because wisdom, verse 19 says, wisdom is vindicated by what? By her deeds. Jesus was not a drunkard. He hung out with them. He might have even drank with them. I would think he drank with them. But he was never a drunkard. He never got drunk. Never got drunk. But drank with them. At the same time, he loved them. He loved sinners. He was not a moral compromiser who took their sin lightly. He hung out with them, but then he called them to repent from their sins and receive salvation. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So why did they reject Jesus then? If it's not because... John has a demon, and Jesus was actually the most morally upright person they've ever seen in their lives. So they're not rejecting Jesus for that. Why are they rejecting Jesus? Were they really looking for someone who wouldn't eat and drink with sinners? Were they? Yes or no? No, because they rejected John. So what's their problem? Why are they disappointed with Jesus? Because we are talking about disappointment with Jesus. Why are they disappointed with Jesus? 
Why wouldn't they trust Jesus and entrust themselves to Jesus? Why not? Answer, because children are not uncooperative because they don't like the game. Children are not sad. It's not that the children want a sad song or a happy song. It's that it's not their song, right? It's not that I like this game or that game. It's that I want to choose the game. I want to choose the song. It's my song. It's my game. That's the issue. Why are they uncooperative? The problem is not principle, happy song or sad song. The problem is not principle. The problem is personal. I don't want Jesus. I don't want God. Not the God of the Bible. I don't care what God does. I want something happy. God gives you something happy. I don't want it. God gives you something sad. I don't want it. God, God caters to your needs. I don't want it. It's not enough. And it will never be enough. Because it's not, the issue is not God giving you more. It's the issue that you want to be God. That I want to be God. And that God, and in that sense, God will always disappoint you because God will never bow down to you. God will never bow down to your idols. Ever. And so if that's what you're after, you will forever be disappointed. God loves you. He'll give his son for you. He gave his son for you. God will go to the, he came to earth because of his love for you. But he will never be an idolater who worships you. And he will never follow you into idolatry. So why do they reject Jesus? Because they didn't trust that Jesus was good for them. They didn't trust Jesus to be God for them. They couldn't worship the God that Jesus revealed. They didn't want Jesus because they didn't want God. And they didn't want Jesus because they did not, Jesus would not serve their God. Here's the point. Our standards reveal our God. Our problem is not principle. It's personal. We don't want God. We want to exalt ourselves. And so when it says wisdom is vindicated by our deeds, it's clear where wisdom lies, but we don't care about wisdom. We don't care about the track record of deeds. We just want to be in the center. So to close, what do you do when you're really disappointed with Jesus? When with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He's God's anointed. Lean toward him through scripture, through other great messengers, and through self-examination and repentance. Brothers and sisters, look up here for a second. Friends, look up here for a second. I just want you to think about your disappointments. So think about your most recent disappointment. I'm going to share my pain, the one that I started with in, at the end. But before I do, I want you to think about your disappointment. And I want to give you some encouraging words. So hear these. God ordains your disappointments for your good, if you're a Christian. This is all for Christians. God ordains your disappointments for your good. God ordains your disappointments for your growth. God ordains your disappointments for your joy. God ordains, and why, why does God disappoint us? Why does God ordain our disappointments? Because our disappointments often come from unmet expectations and unrefined, in unrefined joys. I use the word unrefined carefully here. We have unrefined joys. God ordains our disappointments to clarify our expectations. You know why we get disappointed? Because we have expectations that are not clearly what God has us expect. And guess what, brothers and sisters? Just be encouraged by this. You will have unmet expectations for the rest of your life. Remember I prophesied that you'll have disappointments because you will always have unrefined joy. And God gives you disappointment like fire. What does fire do to gold ore? It melts the gold ore, right? So that the impurities of the gold, the refiner's fire, the, the impurities of the gold that's melted, the impurities come to the top, and then you can remove the impurities. But to refine that gold, it takes fire, right? It takes disappointment. So God gives you disappointment to bring your impurities. You have joy in God. I, I have joy in God. I love Jesus, and yet I'm disappointed with Jesus. Why? Because my disappointment in Jesus, my, my joy in Jesus, is not fully refined. There's impurities in PJ's joy with Jesus. And so God gives me disappointment to cause, to cause, my, disappoint, to cause my impurities to rise to the top so that God can clarify my expectations and deal with my impurities. So here's my pain. This week, and I say this for Barbara, if you're watching at home, Barbara, we miss you, we love you and Jimmy. Uh, Barbara gets a kick out of this. My pain this week was that I had 
pain in my finger for two hours. And I was ministering to one of our interns as he was sharing with me, asking me these ecclesiological questions after our intern discussion. And for the life of me, it was hard for me to concentrate on serving this brother because as I had this pain in my finger that I've had for a while, this was a sustained pain in my finger. Now I know we have members who go through chronic pain all the time and they laugh at me and I, I love that. So yeah, and we're praying for, for those members who have chronic pain. But I had this pain in my finger for two hours and I thought this is most certainly arthritis. I'm having arthritis. This is the moment. This Tuesday night is the turn of my life where for the rest of my life, I'm going to have arthritis in my hand. And as this brother is asking me these heartfelt, you know, theological, ecclesiological questions, I'm listening and I'm like, God, I am so sad right now. I am so discouraged that I'm on the downhill for the rest of my life. And I was so discouraged, like where I was genuinely disappointed with God. I was so sad, like, and what was God revealing? Idolatry. PG, your body's going to decay. But I'm going to be here for you and I'll be your God. And God, so God was refining me as I'm trying to minister to this brother. God, I could just feel the fire in my heart and in my soul. And God is saying, yep, you have idolatry here. You didn't know you had idolatry here, but you do. And as my pain, my fingers throbbing with arthritic pain, I'm trying to rejoice in God's refining fire in that moment. And I didn't do a perfect job with it, but God was doing that in my life. The point here is that God will use our disappointments. Disappointment, brothers and sisters, is not disaster. Disappointment is not devastation. Disappointment is not distraction. Disappointment is deliverance. It's deliverance from small-mindedness, from belittling Christ, from impure joys. Disappointment delivers our minds from things set on the earth to put our minds on things set above. Where who is? Where Christ is. And why? How can this be? Because Christ, our disappointments are not final and ultimate, they're penultimate disappointments. So we lean towards Jesus. Because when we lean towards Jesus and we look at Jesus, what do we see in Jesus? The one who underwent ultimate disappointment, right? He prayed three times, let this cup what? Be passed from me. What did God say? No. Now Jesus was not sinfully discouraged the way I'm sinfully discouraged. But Jesus was, 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 was grieving. He was discouraged. He, was, he, was, he had no physical strength. He was so discouraged and disappointed. Sinlessly disappointed. And so Jesus goes to the cross, and that disappointment is the ultimate disappointment. He was damned by the Father on the cross. God exhausted his wrath on Christ. That disappointment is ultimate and fully realized with nothing held back. Full on, more than disappointment, devastation. More than devastation, damnation. On the cross, hanging in darkness. So that everyone who's united to Christ would never even taste a drop of ultimate disappointment. Your disappointments could never be ultimate if you're a Christian. They're always penultimate and they're always deliverance and they're always a gift of God because of what Christ has done. So brothers, sisters, when Christ when you're disappointed or when with Christ you're disappointed, lean toward him. He is God's anointed through scripture, through other messengers and through self-examination. Friends, if you don't lean towards Jesus, your disappointment will turn to frustration. Your frustration will turn to anger. Your anger, because it hurts so much, it will turn to apathy and indifference. And your apathy will turn to cynicism, where you can't even believe what is true anymore because you're so cynical. But if you lean towards Christ when you're disappointed, you'll realize God's goodness. You'll be given gratitude and, and genuine thanksgiving. Your gratitude will turn to deep joy. And your joy will be faith that keeps you going until Christ fulfills all of his promises to us. Blessed is the one who isn't ultimately offended by Jesus. Let the one who has ears to hear listen to what God's spirit is saying to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your sweet promises. And we confess that we doubt your promises. We critique your promises. We misunderstand and misquote your promises. And then we are disappointed with you. We're discouraged by you. We rebel against you. We complain to you sinfully, Father. We complain to you, Lord Jesus. We complain, Holy Spirit, even as you're working in us. Forgive us. 
for our idolatry, for our pride, for our sloppy reading of scripture, for our rejection of your messengers, the great ones who come to us to gospelize us again and again. Lord, change us. We know disappointment is coming today, tomorrow, and until you come or will you take us. Lord, deliver us in the disappointment. Usher us into your presence again and again and again with joy, hope, and love. Thank you for the disappointments that are coming today and even this week. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You told me after the sermon? Sorry. The third check is check your heart. Check the Bible. Check the messengers. Check your heart. What are you truly worshiping? I knew I was going to get lost into it myself. I, I, I saw it coming. All right, brothers and sisters, you know what we do here. If you're a guest here for the first time, what we typically do after the message is we take three or four minutes to share with someone around.